Good morning, Redeemer. How are we all doing today? Good. I hope the fourth was good for you and that uh, you didn't get too full on American food or have any unfortunate interactions with fireworks. Uh, my name is Jesse Taylor. I'm the, I'm the intern here at Redeemer, and I wanted to take a quick second just to uh, express my gratitude and thankfulness for everybody here. Um, I've been the intern for just over a year now, and I don't think I ever had the chance to really stand up and like officially say that that's what I do when I'm running around here. I'm, I'm actually kind of on, on staff here. So um, I'm starting my, my final year as the intern, and I'll go through June. And I'm really excited just to see what uh, God will have to bring. And um, it's just been an honor to serve this local body of believers. So it's good to be back in Bloomington. I've had a busy June. Um, I've been out for the last two weekends. I was, I was up with the Youpers in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So that was awesome. And uh, I had the opportunity to visit a church in Chicago. And it's really cool to see what, what God is doing in other places. But there's nothing like coming back to your closest brothers and sisters here. Amen? Amen. So throughout our study of of 1 John, we've discussed what it truly means to to abide in Christ and and the fruit that is produced in our lives as we do so. At this point in the letter, the focus is on loving one another. So last week we, we learned what love is. Dave spoke on that. And broadly speaking, love is laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters just as just as Christ laid down his life for us. So it doesn't mean that we only lose our lives for one another, right? Although it doesn't rule that out, but it essentially means taking a completely selfless approach to loving one another. So we want to develop a lifestyle that mirrors Christ's self-giving lifestyle. That's easy, right? We're supposed to be selfless because Christ was the most selfless. No, it's not that easy. We struggle all the time with living the way we ought to. We, we either don't obey the command to, to love well enough or, or we just do it completely wrong and with the wrong heart. We can take maybe just the past 24 hours, the past week, and see how we fail to love one another. Then we realize, uh-oh, I'm not doing this right. And then maybe some worry sets in or, or anxiety and nervousness and thoughts that we're We're not sure where we stand before God. So think of something that makes you anxious. Maybe public speaking or, or, yeah, that, that's the one for everybody. Or or something that makes you nervous or worried, right? Now think as if that object of anxiety, whatever it may be, was just gone. And think of that feeling, that ease and that peace And that weight lifted. So John understands at this point in the letter of the assurance he needs to give us. He needs to release a little bit of that anxiety. So instead of just saying love, love like Christ. Love in deed and in truth, period. Peace and blessings, we're out. (laughs) Now he reassures us of our stance in relationship with God and Christ. So that takes us to our text today. So if you can, please, please stand as I read from from God's word. Uh, the text is 1 John three nineteen through 24, and it's on page 708 or 878 of those Bibles in your row. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then, then please take that as a gift. I hope that you can learn from it and be transformed by it. So 1 John three nineteen through 24 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth 
and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments, and we do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. So whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, for this day um, that I get to stand before this, uh, this group here, and it's just such a blessing. I thank you for what you're doing in this city. Um, and I just pray that uh, as we move through this text today, you teach us that we can, be, we can be comfortable and confident in what Christ has done for us, and that we can love one another well, and um, that we can abide in Christ. I just pray that um, as I'm up here today, you, you speak to people. Uh, please just reach those who, who need to know you. And, and I just thank you so much for, um, for your love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So before I dig into the text, I want to be clear on the points that I want to get across today. You know, I like to kind of lay it out there just in case... I lose my way throughout the middle of this. So first, when we feel like we don't measure up or we feel condemned, we can be confident in our stance before God. That's going to be the first point. Second, because of this confidence in our standing with God and Christ, we have confidence to obey his commands. And lastly, we have confidence to abide in Christ. We're going to be talking a lot about confidence today. So the first few verses of this section help us navigate why we can always be at ease and be confident before God. I'm going to read 19 through 21 again. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So we see in verse 19 that if we love indeed in truth, we can know that we, 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 can know that we are of the truth and be assured before God. Not only are we assured personally and corporately, but this also speaks, this love speaks volumes to the world around us and points to something greater. So I think aside from the pure professing of belief in Jesus Christ as being who he said to be, um, I'm, I'm convinced more and more every day that there are two practical ways in which true Christians stand out to others and really prove the prove that we believe in Jesus Christ, right? And that's, those two things are the way we love selflessly and the way we approach hardship and suffering. So I'm going to, we'll leave the hardship and suffering for another time because I think you could expound a whole sermon series on that. But sticking with love, I think it's really important that we're the most loving to each other as believers. John is saying if we abide in God, then we love each other. Not much wiggle room, Right? So I need to make a quick side note that it's absolutely true that we have to be loving to all, right? Jesus talks about this plainly on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says that we will even love our enemies because if we don't, then we're not different than anybody else. It's easy to love those that we like or that agree with us. So when I talk about loving today, it needs to be implied that I am including that it's vitally important that we are loving to everyone outside of our local church body. 
But John is echoing Christ here, and he's saying that people know we are Christians, and we are reassured that we are right before God by the way we love each other. That's what this letter is, is dealing with. He is concerned mainly with how Christians are loving other Christians. And this love should be so out of this world and different than anything else, any other way people love each other, and inviting and addicting. Now, unfortunately, I don't think we're so good at keeping this command to love indeed in truth. There are many instances where professing Christians, we fail to love each other, right? We fail to love each other well. So let's just be honest with ourselves. We let petty issues sneak in and escalate and become big. We offend and we get offended. We like to have power. We think titles and positions are really important, so we'll kind of do whatever we can to attain them. We slander, we gossip, we get bitter, we covet our brothers and sisters. Possessions and skills, we want to see people fail. We can't be wrong, we can't submit to leaders because we think they probably just want to have authority over us, right? And sometimes leaders take advantage of their, their authority. So we fail so much. That's a long list, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's, it's true. And I'm not surprised either that we do fail. A huge threat to Satan is a thriving church. We should expect the biggest attacks to be in the relationships we form right here in this room. We hear those little whispers, you know, and then the next thing we're thinking we got it all figured out and we're not loving like we're supposed to. So hopefully we do get convicted of this. Hopefully we are convicted to love one another well so that we're just bursting with encouragement and care for each other. But usually, though, this conviction is there's going to be some guilt that gets brought along with it. So maybe you do something just completely unloving. And then you're thinking later, man, I really messed that up. And I know that my love is proof of my stance in Christ, but I'm not loving. So am I in Christ? And that's a simple thought process, but it's a vicious one. And maybe we're even doubting like where, where we stand before God and our salvation. Or maybe it's not that we feel guilty and convicted because we really are trying to love well. But we feel as if we don't measure up. We're not good enough and there's only so much time in the day for me to obey these commands and I can't do it and I just feel like a failure. John understands this and he knows that explaining about the ways we should and ought to live can be practically hard to achieve. He says in verse 20, for whenever, and I'm going to pause right there, Notice he says, whenever, not if ever. So he knows we're going to mess up, we're going to fail, we're going to make mistakes and fail to love each other like we should. But he says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now that's awesome. What he's saying here is that when doubt, worry, anxiety, nervousness, thoughts of not measuring up, etc., 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 they come along, we can be assured that God is greater than our heart. He knows we can't do it. He knows that our hearts alone are miserably sick. So I understand that some teaching in the world that truly believes that humans are innately good, um, I do have a hard time believing that. And I don't want to just generalize two major viewpoints here because I understand that there's a lot of complexities in the arguments for that. But I do believe that the results speak for themselves. If you look at the course of humanity and history, 
I don't think there's any, I can't find an instance where, where humans prove that they were able to maintain a good society with each other. There's, there's conflicts. It just happens. It's always been that way. So God understands this weakness that we can never measure up to his standards. You can't serve enough, give enough, know enough, enlighten yourself enough, be nice enough, or good enough. So what has God done? In the greatest display of grace ever, he sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we can't and die the death that we deserved. And in this death on the cross, all the failures, sins, and shortcomings were taken upon him. So now, when we feel like we don't measure up, we remember that Christ has done all the measuring up we ever have to do. Right? Christ has done all the measuring up we ever have to do. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, and I think we've heard this quote before, but it's good. He says, the general religion of mankind is due, but the religion of a true Christian is done. Right? We can reassure our hearts that God has done it, and if we trust in Christ, our hearts don't need to condemn us. So he also adds, John adds, that God knows everything. He knows our hearts, and when we when we truly are striving to be more like Christ, we can be assured of the sovereignty of God. Remember, we don't save souls. Christ saves souls. So really often it's, it's easy to believe that we must do something to save people, right? To make them understand. Make them understand. We are reassured here that we can go to bed at night and know that we rest under the control of the God of the universe. That's good news. Once we understand this position we have in front of God, we are given incredible freedom. Freedom that comes from the grace of God and not from needing to measure up to a standard, right? So verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. So here John's saying that once we understand our position before God in Christ, we can have confidence. Confidence to know that we can stand in the presence of this gracious God. And he looks at us through the lens of what Christ has done on the cross. Then this confidence propels us to the second point, which is that we have confidence to obey God's commands. Verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. So because of our stance with God... We should not be able to help but want to please and obey him, right? We should want to do that, to submit and to trust and let him be our Lord. I think, you know, I think overall humans are a lot like teenagers. And bear with me here. There's hope for you teens because everybody is like you. We think we know everything, right? No teenagers? Amen? Amen, yeah. So I was a weird dude uh, in, when I was, uh, if you knew me in high school, I'm not far removed, but um, I was a weird guy. I, if you think I dress, I'm actually dressed pretty nice today, but when I used to, I used to dress pretty weird. I would, I would rock up to school and I would have my, uh, oh, I had some Timberland boots. I used to have velour sweatpants, but just regular sweats most of the time and a, and a white t-shirt and a flannel and I had my Speedway, cup of coffee, the gas station, right? Um... I was the most comfy teen. I, I, can, I can be honest about that. That's the truth. But 
that's beside the point. Anyways, I thought, I, I did think I had it all figured out, right? I remember in high school discussing with my friends, like, my philosophies on certain, on certain things, whatever that means for a high schooler. Um, but it wasn't until I left my parents' house that I realized, you know, my parents really know a lot more than I do. They know how to live in ways. They set rules in, in ways that, that want, they, they wanted me to flourish, essentially, right? So the beauty of what God has done is that we can be confident that the commands he gives us are far greater and more empowering than even the best parents. Any, any command or rule they can come up with. So the commands are there for our good, not, not to hurt us, right? But to help us, not to restrict us. So we, get to, we, we, we see that when we keep these commands in verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him, right, from God. This doesn't mean that we get whatever we ask for. This is something that um, some people do believe, but it means that when we understand our position in Christ and we obey his commands, we, we can have complete confidence that our prayers are heard and that we receive answers. Sometimes the answer is no. Right? Can I have a million dollars? No. That would be great. But um, th- this will be unpacked later in First John, so we'll just leave that. Um, so moving on, what commands do we see in the passage? There's two, right? Verse 23 says it's that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. So if you've noticed, First John has like a really circular style to it. Um, it explains something and it comes back to it later, a few paragraphs later, or even within the same paragraph, and it mentions the same thing a few times, which is good, so we constantly are reminded. But here we see something for the first time in the letter. John has mentioned before that we know we are of the truth when we profess that Jesus is the Christ, right? But this is the first time, halfway through the letter, that it is explicitly stated as a command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We're called to have faith and love, love and faith. So here we see that John is saying again, we can't separate our practical action from what we believe. So we know that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and everybody else, and that love just spills over to our interactions with everybody, right? But often we like to leave it there. Cool, so we're loving each other, right? We're loving each other well. That's enough, right? No. Lots of people teach that. Lots of religions. I'm getting some air in here, aren't I? Nathan warned me of this. Is that better? Okay. So lots of people teach that. But what what is added at the beginning of the command makes all the difference. We're called to believe that God's Son is Jesus Christ. The historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, God in the flesh. We are to believe that and have faith in that. And this is the hardest, this is the harder part of the command a lot of the time. It's hard because the world doesn't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it, right? They don't want to hear that someone would claim that Jesus Christ, an historical person, is a son of God. We just want to keep the command of loving one another and kind of push the other part aside. We like the love, but the truth claim, let's just kind of sweep it under the rug, right? So John's saying you can't leave it out. 
We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Not just love one another. So honestly, if we're not taking seriously our belief in Jesus, then what are we doing here? Why gather and sacrifice time and resources? Come, if, if we're having a 9 a.m. gathering, come at 6.45 in the morning to set up all this stuff. Believe it or not, this is, gets set up every single week, right? Why? We're not a social club, right? We're not just here to sing and have a good time and feel good. We gather because Christ died for us. We gather because we stand pure in Christ. And in front of God, we are commanded to believe in him and proclaim our risen Lord and to worship and glorify him in all circumstances and to love super well. So I enjoy learning about those who lived closest to to Christ on earth. I think that we leave a lot of history out nowadays. We We live in a quick, fast, like social media uh, society, so we just are like, this is the information we have now, history, right? No. I, I, think that it, I think it's best to understand what the early church understood, because it gives us the best context in which to interpret scripture, and to learn how we ought to live and carry on. So the early church understood the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, really well. And when faced with opposition, they didn't waver. And they faced some serious opposition. Listen here to the ends of the lives of the apostles, those who saw the risen Christ, walked with him, and talked with him. Peter, he was martyred during the reign of Nero, the notorious Roman emperor who persecuted Christians, and the church historian Eusebius said that he was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die as Christ did. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, so that's why we have, there's those X-shaped cross, that's St. Andrew's cross. James was beheaded under Herod Agrippa I, the king of Palestine. I think he's the only person who actually, um, it's written about him in Acts, James. John, the author of this letter, was banished to the island of Patmos, and later he was allowed back, and in a historical document called The Fragments of Papias, it says that after he wrote the gospel book that bears his name, he was honored with martyrdom. Philip died a natural death. Bartholomew, he's a mystery. Thomas was most likely martyred by spearing near Madras. I actually don't know where that city is. I think it's somewhere close to to India, maybe. Matthew was most likely martyred in Ethiopia. James, who was the one traditionally thought to be the brother of Jesus, he was put on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem before it was torn down in 70 A.D. And he was urged to deny Jesus publicly. Instead of doing that, he gave a rousing vindication of Christ, and he was thrown from the temple. And it didn't kill him, so they ended up stoning him to death. And it's reported that as this was happening, he was praying for his persecutors. Jude, or Thaddeus, was martyred in Mesopotamia. Simon, it's unclear, kind of like Bartholomew, as to what happened. And lastly, Paul, he was beheaded. So I say all this to show how serious the apostles, those who actually walked with Jesus, how serious their faith was. This was a, and this is a huge apologetic for the faith, right? It shows how serious they were about what they learned from Jesus. From these men, Christ spread his church. That's why we're here today, right? That's our history. As a result of men and women 
who died because they were not willing to compromise what they believed. So learning about this and in preparation for the, for the sermon, I was asking myself, like, what lengths am I willing to go for Christ? We're fortunate that we don't live in a climate where we have, like, physical persecution here in America, right? But we do around the world have brothers and sisters uh, who are perishing for their belief in Christ. And it's important that we know that. We, gotta, we have to recognize that and mourn that and hurt when they're hurting and seek to, to encourage and change those situations if we can. But here we have persecutions a little more of the verbal sense, right? It's, it's, a, it's a common view that Christians are on the wrong side of history, that belief in God's word is archaic and outdated, that it isn't authoritative or correct, that it's just kind of silly, that history is moving on without us. You can keep believing about that stuff 2,000 years ago, right? We don't need to worry, though, when people scoff about that. Our whole existence as a church started on this wrong side of history, right? Dr. Russell Moore, who, he's an author and a professor, he said this, on the wrong side of history, we started on the wrong side of history with the Roman Empire and the cross. So people have been disagreeing with Christ for ever since he was on earth, right? So we can and should be confident to obey the command to believe in Christ. We have to stand firm on that. John says we can't separate the command to love one another with the love to or with the command to believe in the name of his son. So, we see that we have confidence to stand before God. And this propels us to obey the commands that God has given us. And we understand that God wants what is best for us. So the passage ends with farther encouragement of the confidence we have to abide in Christ. Kind of the whole theme of this letter, right? Verse 24. It says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the whole passage works back to the assurance and the confidence that we have in what Christ has done on the cross. We know that we don't measure up and that, and that our hearts will condemn us, but we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So once we are reassured of this stance, we're empowered to obey his commands, which are to believe in the name of his son and to love, both massively important. And we end with this encouragement that if we keep these commandments, we abide in God and he abides in us. But how do we know that he abides in us? We know because we have the Holy Spirit. This is the first explicit mentioning in this book of the Spirit, right? The third member of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers us to believe and to love. So Christian, when you feel like you're not worthy or you're guilty or you're ashamed or anxious of your standing, remember what Christ has done. Remember that you're seen righteous, you're clean, and you're set free. You're free under this grace to obey God who has set up rules that he wants to help you flourish, right? He wants for you to flourish. And you can obey him, the one who loves you so much, so we're free to glorify him, to be joyful in him. And to love self-sacrificially. And if you do that, then you can be confident that you are abiding in Christ, right? And that he is in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. The one who makes you able to believe in love. 
So if you're here today and you have not been changed by what Christ has done, then I encourage you to accept what he offers. He offers a freedom that is just folly to our human minds. We don't, we don't, we don't naturally think that it's real. This grace, we just naturally reject it. It can't be that easy. It can't just be that it's a gift freely given, right? God sent Christ to give peace to those who believe in him. And he sent the best gift, and that's himself. So now you can glorify him and be joyful. Stop needing to achieve a correct standing or do enough to be good in front of anybody, right? So now we get a chance to respond to what Christ has done for us by, by taking communion. Uh, it's a time for those who have accepted Christ to partake in, in remembering what Christ did on the cross. The bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for us. If you have not accepted Christ, then uh, take this time to reflect and pray and, and, and to let him be the Lord of your life. It is so freeing to live for him. And if you want to talk or pray, we'll have some people in the back there for you to do so. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, uh, I thank you for sending Christ to die for us. I thank you that we can be confident in what God has done, what you have done. We can be confident that there is nothing that can separate us from you. And we can be confident that we don't have to, to be good enough, but that we can rest in the grace that you give us. I just pray that moving forward from here, we, uh, we're just on mission for you and loving super well and not wavering in what we believe. Um, and help people to take notice of that. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.